Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Future of Higher Education. I'm David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and and your host for the podcast. And I'm delighted to be here today with Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University and really the architect of their move uh, to become the largest private university in the United States. Paul, it's great to be with you. It's a pleasure, David. Um, Paul, could we start out by just sh- having you share a little bit about your, your background growing up and your own educational path? Sure. Um, it's going to sound very schmaltzy <laughs> because I am a kind of you know unapologetic believer of the American dream and also worried that it's slipping away from too many people. But I uh, my family immigrated from what some people would call French Appalachia. So this was a part of New Brunswick, Hearts, Gravel, Farming, Village. Uh, when I was three, so I'm an immigrant. Um, they had eighth grade educations. My mom worked in a factory, in fact, till she was about 75 or 76 before she left. And my father was a laborer, construction. Um, and I was also first gen. So I'm the first, I'm one of five kids and I'm the youngest and the only one to go to college. And that's true, it was the first in my extended family. <laughs> so we didn't know anybody. And I grew up in a working class neighborhood in the Boston area in Waltham. Uh, and it was, you know, kind of a melting pot, literally all the backyards met. And there was, you know, the Greek family and the Italian family and the Portuguese family. I mean, it sounded like, you know, a, a sort of Lin-Manuel Broadway musical. Of time. <laughs> um, but, you know, no one we knew went to college. And uh, it was really my ability to afford, because of public education, an affordable, uh, high quality undergraduate education and then private education for my master's at Boston College and then back into a public for my PhD at UMass. And it really changed the whole trajectory of my life. And my daughters have lives that their grandparents could scarcely imagine. I've been at university longer, but yeah. And and that path into a, a master's and a PhD, given that you grew up without any direct role models for that, what was it that that led you to choose that path? Critical mentors all the way. So it was actually goes all the way back to a sixth grade teacher, uh, Mr. Schlafman, who went on later to become an NBA referee. But um, I, my mother, we could recall almost verbatim the parent-teacher meeting in sixth grade when he said, you know, Paul could go to college someday. And this is when schools tracked students. I don't know if you remember tracking, David, where you grew yeah. up, but, you know, we were literally six ones, meant you were sixth grade. First track was college. Six two was maybe college. Six three was you ain't going to college. <laughs> Six four is you know when do you go to jail? Um, so <laughs> it was. Um, but he said you know Paul could go to college someday. And you know I learned to read English because we spoke French first. Uh, listening to my mother clean houses in the wealthy suburb of Weston, Mass. She would plunk me down in these beautiful wood panel libraries and give me kids books. That's how I learned to read English. And and, you know, college was for the children of those families where the wishy cleaned houses, not for us. And it really, it hit her like a lightning bolt. And she um, she didn't, she never quite knew, like, how that would work, how we would pay for it, what a FAFSA was, you know, any of those things. 
but you held on to this determination that I was going to be the one kid to go to college. And if you've read Hillbilly Elegy, a book mm, for which yeah. I have abundant criticisms, I think it's a terrible yeah. book in so many ways. But one of the things that really rang true for me in that book was, if you remember, his grandmother believes in him. His grandmother believes that he could have a better life. She has no idea. She's actually, as he describes, kind of crazy, right? Gun-toting, swearing, et cetera. But, but she believed that he was capable. And I think that's kind of my mother really did that first. But then it was a teacher again in high school, Mrs. Collins, who I still like stay in contact with, um, who was probably right out of grad school at the time, um, brand new teacher. But she, again, inspired me to think about you know, college. And, and, and I, it was in my head at that point, but she made it more real and travel and a bigger world. And uh, she instilled in me this curiosity, which was really critical. But then, you know, in college itself, it was a big deal to just get a bachelor's. And I, I was done. Like, I was ready, like, okay, what's next? And honestly, graduating when I did in uh, 1980, you didn't really worry about jobs. I mean, the economy was struggling a little bit, but college degree meant you had a job. So I wasn't, I wasn't losing sleep the way one might today. But it was uh, Helen Heinemann, Professor Helen Heinemann, who later went on to become president at Framingham State University, where I got my undergraduate degree, who said, okay, so what's the story in grad school? I was like, what are you talking about? There's no <laughs> and she said, no, you're one of my, well, I'm just going to sound modest. I don't mean yeah. to because you're one of my best students. Like, you, you need to go to graduate school. And she kind of took me by the collar of, Figuratively speaking, and she, uh, her husband taught at Boston College at the time, and she would periodically, when she thought she had a good student, send that student to Boston College. And it was informal enough that you could do that. She could make a phone call to Joe Appleyard, who was the chair of the English department, and she called Joe, and Joe said, "Have him apply." And and sure enough, I'm going off to graduate school, and I, I it was sort of the same thing. I didn't think that was an option. Like that was other people. Like I. Nobody in my state college class. We were all working class kids, right? No one was going to grad school, but you pulled me out and and put me on that trajectory. And that's where, you know, I taught for the first time at the last minute. This is a much longer answer than you wanted, but no, no, uh, it's great. When uh, you know, when when I got there, right on the eleventh hour, Joe called me in and said, um, "Father Joe Appleyard said, um, hey, I have a sudden opening for a teaching assistantship. Do you want it?" I was like free tuition and a stipend are you kidding yeah of course i want it and it included teaching so i got thrown yeah. into the classroom really given a pile of books no instruction or training like go teach yeah and i loved it and that really set me up i knew that then i discovered what i wanted to do which is i wanted to be in academia i wanted to work with students um but if you think about that story every one of those stops is a key teacher and what did they do it wasn't you know it was about Two things. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book that's coming out next year. I have a book coming out in October of this year and another one coming out next year. The second book, the one's coming out, really in some ways goes to these stories. And what they convinced me is it, that I mattered, right? Like they, that it mattered to them that, that I sort of flourish and, and, and grow. And the second thing was that they, they gave, they helped me with like I grew up relatively poor, but the poverty that I'm describing is actually the poverty of aspiration. Mm. And I think what they allowed me to do is dream bigger dreams. Like, you know, in my family, if you worked inside instead of outside, that was like a win. <laughs> right. If you got a state job, that was like a yeah. lottery because that yeah. meant you got security and a pension, right? Yeah. Um, 
but you know, all the men in my family worked in the elements. They were, they were, they were roofing and they were outside in the winter and they paid a price for it. You know, my father's body was broken by the time he was my age. Now it's 63. So, so critical teachers and teachers who help you dream bigger. That was really, that was the, that was the key for me. That's right. great. It's it's a it's it's a, it's so small to your story, but it's like that was the American dream. Yeah, a- absolutely. And you said that in that you discovered your love of teaching, um, and yet as you started out on your career post the PhD, uh, you you took a turn outside of academia, right, and into publishing. So can you talk to us about that? How how that sort of evolved? So I taught for quite a while as a graduate student, both at the master's and doctoral level, and. Uh, and then my first job was as an assistant professor um, at Springfield College. And I was doing a lot of work with technology when technology was really just taking hold. And I was kind of a weirdo, right? Because I was an English major working with technology. So I remember at UMass, I actually had somebody from the computer science department on my dissertation committee, you know, sitting with English faculty she had never met, they had never met her. And, um, and I, you know, at UMass, I had to have two languages, two foreign languages, intermediate level knowledge, and one of I persuaded them that one of them could be uh, computer programming, super, you know, Turbo Pascal, which is <laughs> right. And and I went back later. I, I got this little award at uh, UMass years later, an alumni award. And I came back, and the now uh, I think no longer the chair of the department, but had been when I was there, had a glass of sherry and his wine and his tweedy coat, and he said to me, "You know, Paul." You were the first of our doctoral students who did computer programming as a language. And after you left, we damn well made sure that you were the last. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. But but I was working in that space, you know, really before before the web. I mean, it sounds ancient. Like I remember, you know, it's like one of those we walked to school and, you know, barefoot for five mile stories. But but you know, I, I was when I did my dissertation, I did it on an early Wang word processor. And I think all of us are dated age-wise by did you type or did you word process? And yeah, I just I, I started with the largest portable computer, the thirty-pound yeah. compact. Yeah, remember the K Pro, the Osborne, like these names oh that goodness. are just gone today. And they were big, and you you know even to like just you know delete something, you put a different disk in. It was just, um, but but I you know because I was doing that work and I was publishing and kind of getting a little bit, uh, I guess a little bit well known in my modest discipline and sort of composition, rhetoric and computers and writing, um, I came to the attention of one of the big publishers in 1992. In 1992, the Wall Street Journal did an editorial that basically said, this new emergence of, and everyone called it new media at the time, uh, the emergence of new media is going to put these dinosaur print publishers out of business unless they get with it. And, And they all rushed to create new media units. It was Harcourt New Media, Little Brown New Media, and Houghton Mifflin reached out because they had sent editors to look at my uh, lab. I was running a kind of state-of-the-art multimedia lab for English classes, you know, so they spent they sent editors out for two days, and they came back and they said, hey, would you consider taking a leave of absence from your job and spend a year? It was an offer I couldn't say no to. Hire two brightest young people you can find. And then rather than rush to create a new media unit, they said, just go wherever you need to go and talk to whoever you need to talk to for the next nine months. Carte blanche. And then come back and tell us how we should think about this. Because Houghton was a careful, old line, traditional Boston publisher. They were not going to do anything rash. So I did. We had, you know, these two young women who were great, Annie and Liz, and we just, we went everywhere. 
and we divvy up the map. You know, Intel this week, you go off to my Miami-Dade Community College, early leader in this work, go up to Dartmouth, see John Kemeny, he had invented BASIC. Okay, you go down to Rio Grande, you know, it was just everywhere. Uh, Boeing, right, go to the labs at Boeing. How are they thinking about this stuff? And then we came back after the nine months and we said, we don't think the content's actually going to be valuable. It's just anathema to a publisher. We think content's just going to become more and more available and more and more free. So there's very little value. But we think in a world where content's going to explode, the tools will actually become critical. Like, how do you manage all this without tools? And one of the things that, so because my background is in writing, we talked about building what was in some ways an early version, and it's going to sound like I'm way overstating the case here, but it was a collaborative writing program that looks a lot like what Google Docs became. Right. Um, it came out of Carnegie Mellon. We didn't invent it. We found it. But we said, we think tools like this are going to be really critical as students are working online with multiple parties engaging. The notion of sole authorship is going to give way. We had lots of examples and analogs for this. So they said, would you stay, and, would you stay for another year and build it? And I went back to Springfield, said, can I extend my leave of absence? And they said, okay, sure. No, they, I think they valued me and yeah. were willing to work with me. So I had a, you know, no business doing this. I was an English major. Yeah. And it was sort of like an immersive MBA where we built a whole new technology company unit for Houghton Mifflin. And then we weren't done in just a year. So they said, would you stay another year? And I went back and Springfield said, okay, that's it. Like you're in <laughs> or you're out. And they said, no, I promise I will come back. Um, so they were very gracious. The president there at the time, Bill Bromley, gave me, he was a mentor, um, wonderful man who's now passed away. But so they gave me three years. And then at the end of that, Houghton, you know, made an offer, but I knew my heart was in academia. I went back and then I went to the presidency of Marlboro College. So I intended to go back to teaching and to the classroom. But I think in that work, I really for the first time, had a sense of the broader impact one can have in leadership roles. And you know this, David, the trade-off is you get further away from the work and the dynamics that bring you into the field. Sure. Um, um, I always try in my current job to connect with students uh, every week and I try every day. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. it just keeps you grounded in why we do the work. Well, it sounds like the first stage of, of, of what you had there was sort of the ideal sabbatical, right? One that academics really get right is go the world's your oyster just go learn as much as you can about something and obviously led to a whole new unit for them and a new career path for you it was amazing it was an amazing opportunity for which i'll always be grateful and the learning that happened in the subsequent two years like what did i know about marketing what did i know about budgets really i was a department chair with a yeah. tiny little budget um yeah so it was it was it was a remarkable learning experience so, so tell us about the opportunity at Marlboro. Had had you been thinking about potentially becoming a university or a college president? And Marlboro was a, you know, an interesting institution, a very small one. So you you'd been at a global publisher. What was it that attracted you about that particular opportunity? So it was interesting. I got nominated. I had dinner with a mentor from my undergraduate, a former professor, who said, "Hey, threw your name in. I got a call." I think you'd be great. And I was like a presidency. I'm 37. It's like, who's going to hire me? Um, and uh, so I went to to Bill, the president of Springfield, said, hey, I know I said I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I guarantee you. But I get nominated for this presidency thing. 
there's no way in hell they're going to hire me, but that'd be like a really good opportunity just to hone my interviewing skills. Do you mind? He said, no, go ahead. Because if they're crazy enough to hire you, well, that'll be a fact my cap. So I said, okay. So at the time I was the principal investigator on a, on a um, DARPA grant, uh, ARPA grant, excuse me, uh, with Apple. So I had flown back from Cupertino. I got in on the red eye, grabbed like two hours of sleep, you know, drove north to Marlboro, which was, I was living in Springfield, Mass at the time, uh, knew I was the last interview of the day. And I've been in enough interviews to know just like you are, you're done at that point, right? Like the last interview of the day is not a good slot. So I went to a bakery that I discovered in Brattleboro and bought fresh, warm cookies. And I brought, I walked in and I put the cookies in the middle of the table. I said, I've been in enough of these to know you probably all need some sugar. <laughs> not a bribe. I just want to be, just want you attentive. Later on, the chair of the search committee was also the chair of the board said, we didn't know that day if you get the job or not, but we knew you were going to get the next interview, you know, get to the next stage. So the, cookie, the cookies work. Well, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, who, who would have guessed, but they offered me the job and Bill gave me his blessings. And, I, you know, and I took it for probably all the wrong reasons, because as a lot of first time presidents, you get seduced by the title, you get seduced by the opportunity. Um, it is, yeah, it was, you know, it was a neat place. It just closed. Uh, I was never able, and nor were my successors able to overcome its structural deficits, small, small size, and a whole bunch of other things. But, um, but wow, what a seven-year learning opportunity. You know, like that opportunity at Hood Mifflin, this was a being thrown in the deep end of the pool, didn't know what the hell I was doing. How did it survive me? I'm not quite sure. We did well. We flourished. You know, we raised a ton of money and fixed buildings and built buildings and really put Marlboro on the map media-wise. We were on the front page of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, Atlantic, and more. I think I'm a reasonably good marketer and storyteller, and we got the story out there. Um, raised more money than I'd ever raised before, um, built an endowment from zero to, and I left about 36 million, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it only had 300 students. Right. Um, and and then launched the first uh, hybrid online low residency programs that really I think could have gone somewhere if we had been more successful, but that's a different story. But, you know, it wasn't a good fit. And I didn't know that because I didn't know any, I didn't know, really didn't know squat about being a president. Um, but it, it was a place that really was so wedded to its model, which was in its day incredibly innovative. And like lots of innovations, it get calcifies. And then they, you know, the people who built it believe in it so much, they can't, they can't rethink it. And I didn't have the ability or the persuasive powers or the sensibilities to alter it. And um, I think, I think I, I like to think, I know I did really good work for the place. I don't think it's a place that ever loved me, right? Because in some ways I didn't love it, if I'm going to be true. This is like as frank as I've ever been about this, but I thought a lot about it and it really wasn't anyone's fault, right? It was a matter of fit. Yep. And I'm a ship builder, not a ship sailor. It really just kind of wanted ship sailor. didn't want to change anything just wanted me to raise more money so they keep doing the way they wanted to do it. And I kept thinking, yeah. no, the world's changing. Like we're going to do this stuff. Right. Yeah. And they, they tolerated some of that where I said, we launched you new know, low residency programs, the first graduate programs. We did the first e-commerce pro degree program in the country. If we had kept up that momentum and gone fully online, which is what I was trying to persuade them to do, we would, I think we had a shot at really changing the calculus of the place. 
but that was a bridge too far. And I don't, I don't blame them. You know, they loved what they were doing, but but it did come back to bite them in the end. Yeah. Well, and it's and, interesting that that even with your track record, right? So you could see why as a newcomer, they might not have bought into that. But with having raised the money you did and ha- had the launch of new programs, that, that additional step of really pioneering a new model, right, that, that they weren't ready to, to embrace. Yeah, but if you know, the raising the money was from donors, and that was a little bit like, what took you so long? Yeah. <laughs> should have raised money. And yeah. the new programs were merely tolerated. Like, they weren't buying in. They were just right. like, okay, sure, if you think this is going to help. Yeah. You know, um, the board was behind it and liked it. But when I suggested fully online, even the board couldn't really get its teeth into that one. That just yeah. seemed too different. I mean, that was early. Yeah, right? I was there in '96. Fully online would have been very early, right? Um, but yeah, and we, you know, you may or may not remember this, but the Department of Ed, the U.S. Department of Ed, lifted uh, the 50% rule. It was called the Demonstration Project. It was created by Congress that allowed for the first time fully virtual degrees. Mm-hmm. And I made sure we applied to be one of the schools chosen, and we were, but we squandered the opportunity. Yeah. Right. So what was it that convinced you that Southern New Hampshire was the right institution to try this broader vision? Well, it's interesting, you know, about this question of fit, because I have a friend from Arkansas who often says to me, Paul, there's no education in the second kick of the mule. Um, I was about to make the same mistake again. Right. And this time I should have known better because at seven years I was ready to leave. And I think Mulber was ready for me to go. Right. And it wasn't right. it wasn't contentious. Like it was no. a very gracious departure. But um I think, um, so I was talking, I was in a couple of searches, SNHU was one of them, but I was in another search with, I, I won't name the school, but it was a pretty elite selective school with a very large endowment. It was a school that everyone would recognize the brand. And I know I was the dark horse candidate because this is a place that was getting blue chip candidates, but I made the pool of eight. So the pool of eight, and you've been through this, David, the pool of eight all had airport interviews where they yeah. fly everybody in. This case was Logan. So I just drove to Logan. I didn't fly from Springfield, Mass. Um, I drove to Logan. And it was because of its very inclusive governance, a big search committee, so big that they divided up into two. So you met with Group A and then you met with Group B. I met with Group A. I knew I was the dark horse long shot, so I had nothing to lose. I'd really done my homework. And I was... I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound modest again. I hit it out of the park. I mean, I had them laughing. I had them crying. They were eating out of my hand. I didn't know if I was going to get the job, but I knew I was going to be one of the two people invited to campus. Like, I was killing it, right? And I was doing it by being very direct and honest in my assessment of what was great about the place, but also what wasn't great. And you could see people nodding. It was fine. Like, he's speaking yeah. truth. Like, we know this, Like, right? And it was great. Then I went, so I had a break, and then I went into the second group, and I did the same act. I went down like the Hindenburg. I mean, I want to call a timeout. Ten minutes in, I knew I wasn't not only going to get invited. Like, this was yeah. a waste. I was like, hey, guys, you know and I know this ain't going anywhere. Like, right. let's, let's buy ourselves some time. But, you know, you suffered, you yeah. plod through it. And I was like, what was the difference there? Well, the difference was they put all the Mavericks and the low power <laughs> people in Group A. Group B was the board chair, the executive committee, the provost, right? And these were people who had drunk the Kool-Aid on how wonderful this institution was. And I don't believe anyone's Kool-Aid. And so I'm going in there telling them what really we needed to address and what my vision would be. Um, (laughs) It was just a bad idea. But interestingly, the second group was smarter than me because they, they knew what I wasn't seeing, which I would have been a terrible fit. 
like they weren't going to tolerate all the things I wanted to do. It was a gun nowhere. Like they, they, so a lesson learned. And I went to, um, so then I, at the same time, Nancy Archer Martin, who's a search person, was recruiting me for the Marlboro to persuade me to apply. And I was like, I know Mal. I mean, excuse me, Southern Hampshire University. I was like, I know that Southern. Hampshire. I, I was on the S Commission. I'd seen it up before. I said it was a reasonably good school, kind of a mid-tier, third-tier. I don't know how you rate these things. But like Dick Gustafson, my predecessor, had done a good job taking a place that had been on the mat and on the verge of collapse and really kind of bringing it back to stability. And some nice things were happening, but it wasn't on anyone's radar screen. But I started taking a closer look. And, and the more I looked, the more I liked. And what I liked was it served kids that looked like me. It was first generation. It was working class families. Um, it, you know, Manchester is a blue collar town. There were a lot of kids from Manchester and beyond. Um, it actually had an online program and not a ton of places did. And they had it because in 1995, when uh, so, uh, then New Hampshire College, we later changed our name to Southern New Hampshire University, um, we were a preferred provider for the U.S. Navy. We actually had little satellite campuses on Navy bases up on Brunswick Naval Air Station and down to Roosevelt Roads in Puerto Rico, which is a big naval air base, a big air base, Navy base, excuse me. And in 1995, the Navy had this revelation. They said, every time we put a sailor on a ship, he or she, mostly he, uh, immediately becomes a dropout. Like they can't go to class the next day. They're on a ship. And that's always going to be the case. You don't get to stay on base because your class doesn't end for two more weeks. So they said, look it, we want all of our preferred providers to figure out how to start offering distance education. This new thing called distance education. And it could be, you know, send them off to sea with a set of CDs and we'll send you something in the mail. It's pretty kludgy. But they kind of dragged us into distance education. I don't know if we would have got there on our own. But when I looked at it, I was like, I know technology, right? That's what I've been working on. I could see what was happening. I could see the for-profits were starting to take share. If you remember, they came to take 12% of all college students at their height. And I thought, I could work with this. So I liked the, I liked the ethos. I liked the mission. And in that, every meeting I had, when I subsequently said, yes, I'll throw my name in the ring, um, every meeting I had, everyone said, we're hungry to be better. Now, they would define better in all kinds of ways, right? For very traditional ways that we didn't do. Um, but they, but there was a willingness to change. There was a hunger for change, which was not the case in that elite institution that knew better than to hire me. So I decided from a mission perspective, the students, some of the tools that were available, and that hunger to change that this would be a good fit for me. And I always say, I've written this a number of times in various places, the biggest impediment to change and innovation is a big endowment and a highfalutin reputation. It's just very hard to change. Yep. And we had neither. <laughs> so, so you had the, the desire, the hunger for change and moving up, and, and you had some of the, the protos of what you would build with the, the partnership with the military and the distributed model. So, so talk to us about sort of what the initial strategic plan looked like and how you built your team. What, was it folks who were already there? Did you bring in others from the outside? Or? Yeah, so it was um, a combination. There were a number of retirements and departures, and that was a bit of a gift because I was able to bring in some of my own people without having to displace anyone, which is never fun. Um, some of the people who stayed, stayed on for a little bit. But, you know, I think one of the things I would observe and I'm sure, I don't, I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but anyone who's been a president knows, till you get your team right, till they are your team and aligned with your vision, 
it is really hard to move because you can't do everything, right? That's ridiculous. But that's a micromanager, right? They're ill, always ill-fated. You need a team that you can deploy and you can trust and you and, and you share a vision of where you want to go and you're deeply aligned and you move out together. So I was lucky to be able to get there a little bit faster than maybe would have been otherwise the case. You know, it's interesting. I once asked a group of first-time presidents. We were all pretty new. We were all maybe no more than two years into our jobs. I said, I asked the question, did you... If you could change anything about your first year, what would it be? And everyone said, I would have moved faster on my team building. I would have moved out people that I had a gut feeling. But because you're new and you're a first timer, that sure-footedness about personnel assessments goes away because you don't know. Like now you're in this highly you know, visible job. What if I'm stepping on a landmine? What if, you know, the, what if that person I want to get rid of actually knows where the skeleton is? Like, you know, you don't know. So everybody moved much slower than they would have otherwise. And then I said, when you think back to that, are there any examples where in moving slow, you actually kept somebody you would have otherwise maybe have gotten rid of if you had moved faster? No one had an example of that. The reality is, these are people that moved into the most senior leadership positions by dint of their ability to assess people. But they, but you doubt it when you're a first timer. You don't doubt it the second time around. But so to go back to your question, I was able to build a team. I always say, and I sometimes teach in uh, Harvard Judy McLaughlin's program for new workshop for new presidents. So this is, as you know, only for first time presidents. And I often say that when you take your first any presidency, not just your first any presidency, it's like being dealt into a high stakes poker game. Right, you're joining the table and you get dealt a hand. That hand is the institution you've agreed to lead. Its strengths and its weaknesses, good cards, bad cards. And what do good poker players do? They play their strongest cards. They don't chase inside straights. They don't go for luck, right? They, they, they play intelligently. They look at the other cards. They watch what people are putting down, and then they make their plays. So in some ways, when I looked at the cards I was dealt, I thought, you know what? We're just another mostly business school. We had been only a business school. We had branched out a little bit. We're, very, we're not at all known. I had done a commission to brand study right out of the gate. Do people know us? We had changed our name, remember, so that a lot of people didn't keep up with that. But we were really unknown outside of New Hampshire. We had 8% name recognition in Boston, just an hour away. Um, so we didn't have that going for us. We weren't selective. It wasn't like there was just you know, PD, people beating down the door to come. Um, but what we did have is this little online program that had 18 people working in it. It was tucked away in a nondescript corner of the campus. Um, it wasn't, I would describe, as high-powered, but but they were doing good work. And they knew, what they, you know, like we had some traction and a lot of schools didn't. And I thought, that's my card. Like, I'm, that's my differentiating card. And because I'd worked in technology, I had an appreciation for that world and that market. I sort of knew some stuff about it. And I had been looking at the for-profits and the strategic question, question we set out to answer was, what would it take to compete against a Phoenix? Because they were the poster child, right? At their height, there were 550,000 students or thereabouts. And that's what we set out to do. How do you compete against them? Which meant, how do you study them for their best practices? Because they had a lot to teach us. I know it's easy to, to just throw all of the for-profits aside, but they, they taught us a lot. Like they actually cared about customer service in a way that not-for-profits have never, and many of them still don't. They use data much more rigorously. Um, 
they, you know, they have a level of accountability for performance that we just don't match in the not-for-profit sector. They also had lots of bad processes and, and values that got them into trouble later on. So we also wanted to assiduously avoid the bad things. But that was easier because we're a not-for-profit. And I think a lot of what went wrong with the for-profits is because they're for-profit, because they had shareholders demanding ever better returns and growth, et cetera. So interestingly, that next stretch of time was really critically important, and it's the least sexy part of the story that no one really is interested in. So stop me as soon as you say enough, please. But the least sexy part was, if we're going to compete against the Phoenixes, we have to get under the hood of our own car, the car we're going to drive, and really make sure that we've got our systems right and ready, that our business processes are ready. I still remember take, bringing in our board chair at the time, a guy named Bob DeKoffmaker, a wonderful board chair, who really kind of knew the, that sector, the for-profit sector as well, had studied it. And we took a big whiteboard. We took all the 18 people or so from online. And we said, okay, walk us through the process where someone hears about us for the first time, expresses interest, all the way to the point of matriculation. They're now starting. We whiteboarded all of the steps, all of the processes, the systems that had to be deployed internally. And at the end, it looked like the schematic for a nuclear submarine. We're like, wonder anyone enrolls. We, we noted, for example, this difference. Um, if you had indicated interest, you would have gotten a boilerplate email from us within 24 hours. Thank you so much, David, for your interest in our MBA program, whatever. Um, we'd say nice things about it. We tell you that there'd be a packet coming to you in the mail and, uh, and the, uh, with the information about how to follow up. So then that email goes out to you. Um, the order goes to fulfillment. Those guys put together the packet. They put it out in bulk mail. It arrives at your doorstep six to seven days later. Inside, there's a cover letter that says, David, this is, you know, as we promised, blah, 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 saying more nice things, our eagerness to talk to you, and here's a phone number for you to call. And then we'd wait by the phone and wait and wait. And most of the time, no one called. In contrast, when Phoenix got that first inquiry, somebody was calling that student in under 10 minutes. No competition. We were already, we were done before the email went out because they're already talking to that person. They're already talking about how they're going to pay for it, right? They're super customer service driven. And, and it was, so I, mean, I often say, if you don't get your business rules ready, if you're not ready to receive leads, don't spend a dollar on marketing because it's a wasted dollar. And you know we and then we struggled to get our house in order, and we could not get that team to accept the idea that we should do outbound calling. No one wants to call at home. We hate those calls. What if you're having dinner, right? And we're like, if someone says I'm really interested in learning more, and you call them, then they're probably interested in hearing from you, <laughs> right? Like, let's yeah, not cold outbound calling, but. Yeah. Responding to yeah. Yeah. Response of caller. Yeah. So anyway, we it's the only time we've outsourced anything substantial. We finally gave up and used a company called um, EM, ESM, um, Education Service Management, EMS. Anyway, they were based in Colorado. And we said, can you help us just handling leads? Like, we're going to generate the leads. Um, can you handle those and then hand them off to us once someone's qualified? And they they... They said, sure, of course, they're happy to take our money. They built out a team, and they were so much better. And these leads would come to us. And we weren't enrolling a ton of people. And finally, a guy named David Eby, who later came to work for us, but who was our account manager, said, 
can I come talk to you about your systems? Because we're giving you a lot of good leads and nothing's happening. <laughs> and it was David uh, who really helped us even go deeper with our systems, re-engineering, et cetera. Now, everyone wants to talk about innovation as like, you know, creative spark and mm. a lightning bolt hits. And you had this great idea and you ran with it. The reality is it's in that roll up the sleeve, get into the muck work that actually takes those ideas and executes on them, right? And and those first years were were really tough, but they were critical to our later success. And it was really in 2009, 2010, that we had then, and the question was different. The question was, or let me rephrase that. If the question was, what do we need to do to compete with Phoenix? The question in 2009, 2010 is, are we ready? And we did some, we did some television test advertising around the country. And the criteria was, could we generate interest in cities where we had no brand traction, which was pretty much everywhere, by the way, uh, where there was a big presence of for-profits, because that's who we were competing. We weren't worried about not-for-profits. Not-for-profits are still looking down their nose at online learning. Uh, could we compete against? And we did 10 weeks of test marketing. And the responses were good. Like, wow, we can generate interest. And now we've done the work of the last four years Aren't you ready to to start to sort of you know make something of this? We're enrolling more students, and then the recession hit full force, and we were caught flat-footed. Um, that's a longer story, but we were going to run our first operating deficit in my presidency, and for a long time, not a good feeling. And I went to the board in that tw- October 2010 fateful meeting and said, um, "We were planning on doing a year's worth of test marketing." We've only managed 10 weeks. We don't know if that's just the low-hanging fruit. It's good, but we don't know if it's sustainable. But despite that, we want to spend $1.5 million on marketing to see if we can really ramp this up. And if we're wrong, that deficit just got $1.5 million deeper. I probably wouldn't be talking to you. I'd probably be doing something else, sweeping for somewhere if, if we got it wrong. But in fact, we got it right. And the leads poured in. And we were converting them. And we went back to the board at the February or January meeting at that time and said, we want to spend $4 million more. We ended that year with a surplus of $11 million, and we never looked back. That was, that was the beginning of meteoric growth. So in 2012, when Babson University did its list of the 50 largest nonprofit providers of online degrees, we were number 50. And three years later, we were number four. And that was crazy. And we had no idea how to scale. Like, because, oh, my God, you must be so good at scaling. And I was like, no, we were actually terrible at scaling. We were hiring 30 and 40 new full-time people every Monday, right? We had stacks of computers in the hallways. We had people working on card tables. We were scrambling to find enough space. We broke financial aid. Wait times went through the roof. We were getting slammed on social media. I was just talking to someone who was here back then and said, you know, do you, we still call it, you know, the financial aid summer from hell. We had people volunteering on evenings and weekends just to try to get through the backlog because it takes a long time to train financial aid people. So we learned the hard way. Um, but that was an amazing growth period. 2015, we were fourth largest. Two years later, we were first or second. We're always right up there with WGU. I think we're a little bit bigger now. We're at 170,000 students today. Um, but when we started that journey, we were 2,500 students. Can, can I come back to a few things in that that sort of early story there? So, so one, you mentioned the things that the for-profits were good at and not so good at. I would say one of the others that they really got right that for such a long time, both our publics and privates had ignored was really focusing on the adult learner as as a core market and, and student. Oh, for sure. Right. 
yeah, really good point. And I think, you know, Clay Christensen, who I'm sure you know, famous Harvard Business School professor, was on my board, was a dear, dear friend of some 40 years, just passed away last year. Clay um, has a body of work around jobs to be done. And jobs to be done, which is a phrase that's kind of caught on now. But the idea that we really have to understand that people are buying from us a solution or a job that they need getting done. But the job to get done for campus traditionally students is very different than the job that a 30-year-old with two kids and a full-time job needs. Um, but what so many not-for-profits did when they went into the online space is they treated this, the jobs like they were the same, and they're not. So what they did is they often took their policies and their approaches that they would use with an 18-year-old and simply moved it into an online environment. I'll tell you a story just briefly that I think captures this beautifully, but we're kind of not getting it. So the number one driver of the growth in online was convenience, by far. Um, we weren't nearly as good with online education 15 years ago as we are today. It wasn't as good as face-to-face -face at the time. Um, but again, if you know Clay's work and this whole disruptive innovation model, the disruptive technology gets better and better faster. So at some point, we were, I would argue, we have better quality control measures in online. But at the time, we didn't. But why did online take off the way it did? Because if you're a 30-year-old with a full-time job and two kids, you could race from work to a campus someplace to take your class two nights a week, or you could get home, see it, catch your kid's soccer game, have dinner together, tuck them in, help them with their homework, tuck them into bed, make a cup of tea, put your big furry slippers on at 9.30, log on, and now you're a student when it fits your life better. And one of the things that I'm writing about in, in this book that's coming out soon is really, and it's only more, you know, I didn't recognize this then, but the reality is that time is a, at a premium for low-income people, the students that we care about. If, if you are poor, everything takes longer, right? To get, if you don't wash or dry, it takes longer to have clean clothes. If you don't have a car, it takes longer to have food in your refrigerator. And yet we, we tether low-income learners to place and time, the things that are not reliable for them, of which they have so little. So simply by going to an asynchronous online model, which was get on when your time allows, that's effectively what it does, we, we really tackled one of the very big problems. And that's drove, that's what's driven, right? So we were so I said I was gonna share a quick story. I was driving someplace, I heard a radio ad for a very uh, well known New England university moving its MBA online. And I thought, ooh, MBA is a big program for us. This is gonna be tough competition. They could get their act together. They have a much better known brand than ours. And and it all sounded kind of compelling. So it only worried me more as I listened till I got to the point where they said, um, if you're you know, to, to register, come to the campus at such and such on Saturdays between these hours. And I thought, wow, you don't get it. You didn't put your processes online. You're asking busy people to drive to a campus. You don't get it. And in fact, they've never emerged as competition. Yeah. Can I pick up on another thing, which is the brand? Right when you had arrived, as I understand, just before that, they had adopted Southern New Hampshire University as the, the title. And yet, Right. And and with your vision of of building online and separation from place and the fact that there wasn't any brand identity or equity with that new name, did you think about trying to change it? Because it's it feels like it's it's not an asset if you're trying to go national. And, and it's it's a you know, typically when you hear 
a title like Southern New Hampshire University, that's a regional public, right? Because it, it, it's identifying a place. And so I, I was curious as you, either at that first stage or when you were sort of making a bet, the institution bet at the recession and you're about to go national, I, I, I'm just curious how that, that part of brand, because obviously you were thinking a lot about brand and marketing. So I'd, I'd, I'd observe the following. One is, I was too new to have the courage to suggest we change the name after the place I'd worked on it and the board approved it. And in fact, that spent a fortune. It's very expensive to adopt a new brand. So imagine everything, logos, athletic uniforms, like ay, ay, ay. B, we didn't have a big national dream when we started out. We were thinking we were going to become maybe regional, right? And we actually had, I still remember our strategy was, you know, when we decided in 2009, 2010 to think about national our first part was home hold court, like don't lose sight of New England because that's where most of our enrollments were, but then expand. But at that point now, we've spent even more money in the brand, right? So you always get to this point where like, ooh, pretty high cost and switching pain. So no, let's not do it. We'll shy away from it. But it only, it only gets worse, right? So in retrospect, I wish we had changed it. I might be tempted to say yes, because it does sound like a public and anytime you have a directional indicator, like it seems like a second tier, right? Like you're not, um, you're not sort of, you know, uh, Ten- University of Tennessee, you're Eastern Tennessee, right? Like, well, you have to throw that directional qualifier in there. You can't be the, not the flagship. On the other hand, we looked hard at this question a year ago. We actually have really good brand traction. The question is not, is it like the function of, like the question about a brand is, does it work? People recognize us in HU. We our commercials are well known. People talk about the bus. People, you know, I'm in these commercials with that. If you've seen the commercial, I say stand up, which is an interesting, funny story about how that commercial came to be. But people recognize my voice. I've been stopped in elevators in Cleveland. Some of them, don't I know you? And then uh, say, and it's the voice thing. It happened just the other day, actually. So, so there's and and SNHU as opposed to Southern Hampshire University, you'll hear us use SNHU a lot because there's RPI, there's MIT, there's UCLA. Like initials work, right? Um, and and the, you don't hear people say the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. So maybe I wish we had changed it, but the but the evidence suggests that we're okay. Well, no, clearly you got to the stage where you've built a very powerful now global brand. But I, in, in making that journey from where you were till then, you know, I, it was just interesting to think no, about. No, I agree. Yeah. I, agree. I, I was giving it. I was asked to give a talk to the Stanford Law Faculty on innovation, future of ed, et cetera, et cetera. One of the law faculty said, New Hampshire? Like nothing happens there. And I was like, hold on, time out. Every four years, we are the center of the political universe. Like we may not be every day. Um, but, uh, but it was a pretty funny, it was a pretty funny comment. Um, yeah. So some days I wish we had a different name, but it's okay. Even, even being confused with the public, by the way, I mean, some people look at us thinking we're more affordable than if we thought we were private. It's, it's kind of interesting what we've discovered in the brand studies. I thought you were a public and I would be affordable. And I was like, Oh, you're not a public, but actually you're still pretty affordable. So that kind of thing. Um, and you mentioned looking really closely at University of Phoenix as the leader in the for-profit space that was doing that. As you were thinking about whether it was realistic for you at the scale you were and whatnot to take them on and the other for-profits, were there any other models you looked to to think about? You know, Because really, no one had done it before, right? No one had been a small nonprofit and showed you could take on. These folks well, had stepped into that space. So 
remember uh, University of Maryland, University College had been really campus driven, but they were moving into online to serve their military population. Drexel, people forget Drexel was an early mover in this space. Northeastern was an early mover in this space, as was BU. They all topped out. They all kind of capped up because I think their traditional organizations and governance only had so much tolerance for this unusual, weird online thing. Um, But there were some others. I wouldn't say that they were our models at the time, but but we were certainly looking at all of them. uh, was it Penn, Penn State Global Campus, a world, world campus? I mean, there were other people out there, remember? And there were also ill-fated attempts. Do you remember, um, was it NYU Global? There was an ill-fated NYU attempt. Um, there was something called, that's a weird Latin name, but it was like 16 blue chip universities, Scholastica or something like that. Um, so we were looking at everything and, and also trying to, you know, like everyone else, read the tea leaves for what was coming and what was developing and where we might go. And you mentioned that, you know, something that I think for most college university presidents found pretty staggering, the idea of hiring 30 or 40 new people every every week. Um, and so how did you go about scaling that up, both on, on the support staff side, but also in terms of sourcing that number of faculty? How did you go about identifying folks who could teach effectively in this new mode? And I'm assuming a lot of them weren't in New Hampshire. So, you know, building a distributed workforce, how, how did that so quality skill. Right. Like we broke everything. So we didn't do it that well. They're the first go around. Interestingly, we had a similar growth period this year during the pandemic where our enrollment shot up from 135,000 to 170,000 students in nine months. I mean, it was crazy. Um, and nothing broke. Like we learned, right? There wasn't a second kick of the mule. We learned from the first kick. Uh, so what did we learn and how did we get our arms around that? And we hired 635 new full-time people in the last nine-month period. So, and all of it remote, so even harder. But what did we learn the first time? So uh, one is we hired people who had done scale. So, you know, organizations can outgrow people in key roles. And I think we had some of that. And it was the people that it outgrew were wonderful players and contributed mightily to getting us to that place. But I think you kind of have to be a grown-up at some point. You give people opportunity, but sometimes you recognize, I think you're out over your skis now on this one. So when we brought in a new head of HR, she had worked at a massive financial institution. She looked around, she's like, whoa, wait a minute, time out. You don't have a talent acquisition team? Like your supervisors have to look at all the resumes, the top end of the funnel? Why? Like their time is too valuable. And then when we hire, and then there was, you know, so no, we'll, we build the team. We'll take all of that off your hands. Supervisors only get to be the finalist. And then um, once you hire somebody, she's like, wait a minute, there's no onboarding team? Like make your supervisors, give them the tour? And they're making a phone call to IT? Like, no, 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 there's processes, right? So we started building this capacity for scale. Same with IT, right? We Systems in place to start to do this kind of thing. Um we hired more staff than faculty because we lean heavily on adjunct faculty in our online model. And and we could come, you know, we could be a target of criticism for that. And if we want to go back to that, I'm happy to talk about why it's a little bit different. And I don't think it's as exploitive as people sometimes assume. But but there's no problem finding faculty. So this is only a couple of years old, but two or three years ago, I remember asking our team that does talent procurement, we filled maybe in that year, we had to fill uh, 3,000 positions for adjunct instructors. 
we had 50,000 applicants. I mean, our industry, it's sinful the extent to which we have flooded the industry with people who can't find jobs. Now, interestingly, the last time we did a survey, 50% of our adjuncts are teaching full-time somewhere else or working full-time somewhere else. <laughs> so they're moonlighting, they're picking up some extra income. Some of them work professionally as opposed to in academia, but they've got the right qualifications. They've got their master's degree. Our students actually particularly love those faculty because they're in the work and the way that these students aspire. Um, and then 25% are part-time and want to be retired faculty member, retired executive who still likes the engagement, wants to give something back. And then 25% would be in that category of, fac- of academics piecing together in a haphazard, difficult way, some kind of living. And for, for the ones who are in that mode who would like something more full-time, do you have positions, who people who are excelling as adjunct faculty, do you offer full-time roles for them? Or how, how do you? Not a lot. Um, though we're looking at that, revisiting that question, not a lot. Um, but we, so when we asked them what they wanted, so full-time would be ideal. Short of that, more money. I would answer the same question the same way. Um, but after that, it was um, some level of security and predictability. Like, could we do multi-term contracts? So we started to put that in. We did put pay grades or increments in for how, you know, if you've been with us X number of amount of time or sections, you could sort of move up in that way. So we started to address that. They wanted professional development. They want to be treated like professionals. So we started doing regional gatherings of our adjunct faculty um, and doing stuff around that. Um, we do have some full-time positions, um, not a lot, but we are looking at, do we want to revisit this? But the thing that I would say about it is that if you're hired to teach a class for us, it is not the same as the typical adjunct on a campus. The curriculum has all been pre-designed. It's handed to you, right? We have whole design teams, instructional designers, assessment experts, et cetera. You don't actually get latitude for Like you don't get to talk that out. You have academic freedom and your ability to add to it bring your own life experiences, work experience, examples, et cetera. But you have to kind of stay on the program. But on the other hand, if you accept that, life gets a whole lot easier. You know exactly what you're going to be doing in class tomorrow. It's, you know, there is no class, right? So it's asynchronous. So you have a ton of flexibility. Um, there are no sort of content delivery. That's done in the, in the materials. So your job is threefold. You are there to conduct the, to sort of orchestrate some of the class discussion, which is asynchronous. And that's just to make sure the questions are being answered or the student discussion goes off the rails. You can say, no, no, guys, I think you're misreading this. Let me sort of bring you back. Second thing is you're there to help a student when they get stuck. So I reach out and say, you know, hey, David, I don't understand this. And you email me back and you point, you point me to some content, whatever. And the third is assessment. It's a much reduced role than a traditional faculty role. So the question we have, you know, should we move to more full-time faculty who are willing to accept this pretty non-traditional faculty role? Because this would be anathema to a lot of traditional faculty. Where's my scholarship? Where's my research? Where's my tutu load? You know, why am I sort of delivering everything? How come I am not the arbiter of what happens in my class? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't scale, so it doesn't work for us. Uh, I'm curious, you, you had mentioned earlier the difference in the traditional full-time on-campus experience, what it takes to be successful in that and whatnot, and 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 then building for the online experience. Um, reading your most recent annual reports, 
and and your strategic vision, you've actually invested a huge amount of the revenue generated from online back in the on-campus, where, you know, dollar per student, I'm guessing it's hundredfold what 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 you're looking at in online i'm curious about the decision to do that um it, it, it you know you just added thirty-five thousand students during the pandemic and you're serving a few thousand every year on the campus and so just curious about how you think about the role yeah. of those two yeah so number of things the beauty part of the beauty of being a not-for-profit is we have more latitude to make irrational decisions. So, hey, <laughs> let's sort of, you know, keep this little campus of 4,000 students alive. But being and being slightly facetious, not irrational, but it is a decision not driven by the financial model of it. It is really driven by the board and the institution's commitment to continue educating traditional age students in a certain kind of model. Um, it's Our roots are there. We owe a lot. Online owes a lot to the programs that originally started there and brought over. So we like that model. We like residential, traditional residential education. We think it, there's importance. Secondly, less altruistically, there's a significant value to the credibility that the campus confers on the non-traditional. Um, I think it's diminishing because as online gets accepted, 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 People sort of don't ask quite in the same way that they once did. But for a long time during this journey, students would, you know, I would listen to the calls, right? They'd talk to an admissions counselor and they'd say, well, like, is this a real place? Like, they didn't have the language, right? Like, is this a real place? And we knew what they meant, right? It's, oh, well, it's a, you know, we're a not-for-profit. It's been around since 1932, beautiful campus in Manchester, New Hampshire. As a matter of fact, you know, depending on when this recall was, as a matter of fact, our men's soccer team just won the national championship in Division Two, and blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, they'd say oh, okay, good, good, good. Okay, that, like, we would satisfy what they needed to know. And not-for-profit was a big part of it at the time as well. Um, because if you remember, when we were growing, part of what happened there is the not-for-profits were way back on their heels. Senator Harkin was going after them. Then the Obama administration went after them. And New York Times and Frontline were doing very unflattering stories. So there was they were educating the market, and we were kind of well-positioned at the time. But, but the campus was important in that respect. Now, all of that said, we have challenged the campus to take tuition from 32000 to ten, to do no more merit aid, which I hate, um, to really be need-based driven to reinvent our delivery models. So you can't get from 32 to 10 just doing more of the same, right? Like, so now we're really thinking about these more experiential programs, recognizing learning all the places that can happen, moving away from the traditional content delivery pedagogy to much more hands-on, that's more scalable. So it's a work in progress. We'll see how we do. Lots of people are watching, but our hope is to reinvent the traditional campus delivery model and recognize there are two jobs there. There is the, I need a degree and an engaging learning experience, and I need this rich coming-of-age experience. And we don't know if four years might be more than we need. Maybe three years of coming-of-age is fine, and fourth year you should be working and taking courses. We want to integrate more online with our traditional delivery, more fluidity, give students more options for the modality they need in the moment. I think all of these things are going to characterize higher ed in the future. 
Um, could you talk to us about your, your decision to launch the next big innovation, competency-based education? And particularly, I thought it was fascinating with Clay Christensen on your board. So, you know, his whole theory of disruptive innovation would say, when you've built something as successful as your online engine, and you're trying to launch this new thing that could potentially be seen as threatening since it's serving a similar market, you got to be careful that the the mothership doesn't kill it, right? So how did you think about the launching of that when you did and how you organized so that this new form could, could thrive while continuing, you know, obviously the, the, the prime money generator was, was the online programs. Um, in 2011, I was on the long flight from Malaysia back to the US and wrote a white paper that was titled The Next Big Thing? Question mark. And it was the kind of conceptual framing for what became our CBE program. Its roots were in how do we dramatically lower the cost of an education for people who are being left behind? Remember my opening story? Like, I feel like the American dream has been that, that the role of education in helping people realize the American dream has been diminished. It's too expensive. It's out of the reach of too many people. Um, it's gone off the tracks in many ways. So that paper was challenged my team. It was written for my team to say, is there a model that can get education as close as possible to free? What would that look like? And you have to really think everything, right? And then it was, how do I've really become a critic of the credit hour? How do we how do we rethink how we measure actual learning? And how do we focus more on the demonstrable skills that create job opportunities for people, which actually then change their lives? And I looked at WGU and went out to visit. We're always studying others, right? So just as we did the four projects, really admired what Bob Mendenhall then built. And they were very generous. I mean, they shared, you know, how they thought about the world and what how they were building, what they were doing. So we're very inspired by that. Um, so that white paper led to the creation of a little innovation team. And as you said, Clay's work tells us that when you're trying to do something that's disruptive, not when you're doing something that improves things. So if you're trying to improve what you do, put it right in the middle of the work. Let the people who do the work every day do it. That's called sustaining innovation. But disruptive innovation is when you're really trying to change the rules of the game. And as you suggested, you know, what Clay's work tells us is that the incumbent organization or the incumbent world or industry in which you find yourself will look at that new thing and treat it the way the body treats foreign tissue. It will either try to incorporate it, make it part of its own, or it will spit it out. (laughs) So the way you protect it is to separate it. And my job at that point was to buffer it. We keep the incumbent away. So we separated this group physically. Um, We moved them into a different space. By the way, it's exactly the same playbook as how we grew online. When we wanted to go to grow online, I got it off campus. I got it away from traditional governance. I negotiated space with our faculty to let them move faster, a whole bunch of things. But separate was important. Um, so So we did the same with our CBE program. And then we were at a meeting in Miami sponsored by ETS. And it's there that Amy Lightman, who was former department, a U.S. Department of Ed official, White House person, but now at New America Foundation, talked about this provision called direct assessment that no one had ever used. And what it would allow is for us to not use the credit hour to assess learning. My whole book that's coming out in October is a critique of the credit hour, um, but it would allow us to use other means. And it, but the, the language is um, we could use 
measures of actual student learning in lieu of the credit hour. And I remember reading that thinking, isn't that how we should be measuring learning? Like, why is it in lieu? Like, that's the thing that makes sense. Time doesn't make sense. Time doesn't measure anything very well. Um, so, so that team took that white paper, took the credit, that direct assessment stuff. We sat Amy down that night in the bar of the hotel, like, say more, like, tell us about this. And we dug into the regs. Um, and that those two things were a very talented team, one by a woman named Yvonne Simon, who had been critical in growing online and moved her over. Like, when you're doing this stuff, don't move over your, your leftover folks. Move over your people. Like, these are the hard things you're asking them to do. So very talented team that built out the first iteration of CBE, or came to be known as College for America. And and did am I right in thinking that you subsequently, once you had launched, that it was fairly early in its stage that you moved it in with online or is it still it's a separate unit no we did end up moving it in it wasn't very early as a matter of fact you correctly and i and i neglected to address this question about cannibalization there was real fear with the online folks like wait a minute this thing's so cheap it's going to cannibalize our enrollment so i talked to clay about it and he said you know the way that there wasn't a great answer to that but what he said is one of the ways you could do that is keep your sales channels very different so when we launched College for America, it wasn't a retail product to the general market. It was only B2B. And Anthem Insurance, one of the big four, was really one of our first big adopters. And they rolled it out across Anthem. And it got, went off to a blazingly good start. And that got a lot of attention. And I think it was when we were doing this, uh, when we first started working on this early, like 2012, um, Anya Kamenetz, who now works for NPR, but who at the time wrote a piece for Wired, that uh, as a result had us named one of the world's most innovative companies back in 2012. Um, that got a lot of attention. It was just a whole bunch of things that came together in a really beautiful way. Um, but, you know, as predicted, our online teams were very skittish and weary of this thing. And they kind of kept saying, well, look, at, we're really good. Look at what we've built. Let us do it. And like, well, that's kind of the point. You will struggle to do this thing that's so different. You know, we still navigate that. Innovation is hard. The bigger you get, the more kind of your your bureaucracies take hold. And it's very hard to sort of do genuinely disruptive innovation. So so what was the decision then to move it into the same unit as online, given that? I'm just curious. Well, at, some in point, at some point, what we thought was we were failing then two things in its separateness. And I'm not, I don't think I am good at figuring this out yet, but in its separateness, we didn't well design or look ahead to how we would scale and bring it back in if we wanted to bring it back in. So there were decisions made around systems and platforms that didn't integrate. But worse than that, there were aspects of the design that didn't scale, inherently didn't scale. Mm -hmm. So we did a sort of CB 2.0. We brought in our big online operation to help us on that. It was a mixed success. In some ways, we over-calibrated or over-corrected. And right now, we have a team working on 3.0, and I'm pretty excited about what they're building. So we keep learning, iterating, building, you know, sort of moving out. But I am I have a deep, deep conviction that competencies, it, competency approaches are critical to us getting higher ed right. Yep. I wanted to ask you about a, another innovation innovation you introduced that is a, of personal interest. My, my daughter, Charlotte, is particularly focused on helping refugees. And so I saw your global education movement that you launched. Can you tell us 
how that came about and how it relates to your broader global strategy. I think you've had this tremendous growth, but up till now, most of the traditional students you've served have been in the U.S. And so is the refugee part, is that an isolated case or how are you thinking about this next stage of growth? It's really one of the things of which I am most proud. Um, We were... So when we had CB, we were curious about its efficacy in international context, right? Because if we could lower the price so dramatically, it meant that we could put an American degree program in the financial, perhaps in the financial reach of people in developing economies where the, you know, just huge, huge need. So that's very much our mission. We hadn't really been able to do that, but we had um, a connection to an American run not-for-profit school in Kigali, Rwanda called Kepler University, and they were very intrigued. So we agreed to pilot with them, and it was going very well. And the one of the key people on our team was someone that we knew from through our board, and she had been a principal in Harlem, and just a connection, and here she was in Kigali working for Kepler. So it was like kind of reunion. And when she knew that I was coming out with uh, some trustees and students and my wife for a visit to Rwanda to see this program firsthand. Um, she asked if we would be willing to spend some time visiting the Kaziba refugee camp where she was volunteering. So we went to Kaziba, which is in a very difficult to reach place in West Kenya near the border with the Congo. Um, it's on the top of a mountain and quite removed because when it was at the bottom of the mountain, rebels had come across the border and massacred hundreds of people. So they moved it to a secure location. But the problem in moving it to a secure location, there was no ability to grow food. It was really desolate. It's as hard a place as I've ever visited. And I've been in poor places. I've traveled a lot. But, oof, I mean, this was tough. Um, we, we, we spent a day, uh, I think, as we drove down the mountain and these sort of Toyota Land Cruisers and were bouncing around in the dirt-rutted road back down to the small town where we were staying that night at a lodge. Really, all you could, there was just either silence or crying. I think everybody, it was searing. It was a searing experience. And I remember that night not sleeping a wink. It was a kind of dark night of the soul sort of experience. Somewhere around three in the morning, I was like, I might give up. I'm just going to go find a corner here. My, turn on a light, find a magazine. There's some former other guests had left magazines. And I opened up like a Vanity Fair full of ads for $5,000 handbags and 10000 It was obscene, David. I was like, how the hell do we live in a world with that disparity? And I remember the next morning, red-eyed, tired, <laughs> um, feeling kind of hopeless, talking to Christina Russell, this woman that we knew who was volunteering and saying, you know, Christina, I can't solve the refugee crisis. I don't produce food. These people need more food. There's a lot of things, but we do education. You think there's something we can do. Well, this was Christina's plan the whole time. She knew that would be the only answer. Because the only answer any good, thoughtful human being can have in that place is what can I do? Like, what do I have that I can do for these people? And that was the thing that we could do. So that began the conversation about could we launch a pilot with our partner Kepler in the Kaziba camp? And Christina took hold of that. And she heads up our GEM program, which stands for Global Education Movement. That program, was it was hard in ways you can't. It's like it, these are the 
most challenging learners in the world, right? We're talking about everything from lack of food, connectivity, computers, scarcity of kinds you won't believe. They were living at the time on $16 a month food rations from the UN, which would truck the food in to get minutes on their phones because the, the connectivity to their world, to their families, wherever they were, was through cell phones and, and WhatsApp. But to get connectivity, people were selling the cooking oil they were getting in their app, which means they weren't getting enough protein. Um, crazy. But, you know, we met with a group of students and asked them about what would happen you know, if we could give you some kind of college experience. And they had like that thousand miles stare that veterans who had been traumatized are described as having. All of a sudden their eyes came alive. I know it sounds cliche, but like, is that possible? And I, and I think, you know, what we fundamentally do in this program, and I'll say more about it, is actually we give education, but we give something way more powerful. We give hope. And we now do that program under Christina's amazing leadership and support from some pretty big philanthropists. We expanded that program, which had great results, by the way. We were, Rwanda is an unusual country. It offers refugees freedom of movement and it offers them the ability to work. We were placing 93% of our refugee students into jobs. Life-changing, not just for them, but for their families, for their clans, right? Life-changing. Um, they were outperforming their peers in the Rwandan higher ed system across the board, right? These are not, these are capable people. I know it's yeah. cliche to say now, but for long as to say now, opportunity, right? Talent is universally distributed. Opportunity is not. Yeah. You're creating opportunity. So with the donors who caught wind of this and the support of the Audacious Project, which is tied to the TED Talks, mm-hmm. Um, we presented and we got another 8 million and we expanded. So we are now in the Kakuma refugee camp in Northwest Kenya, the largest camp in the world, 200,000 people. We are also in Nairobi itself. Um, we are in Cape Town. Um, Two thirds of the world's refugees are not in camps. I know we all think camps, but they're distributed. So in Cape Town, they're just distributed. They keep a very low profile. There's been a lot of violence against immigrants and refugees. So they struggle mightily. We're in the Zaleka camp in uh, Malawi, about 40,000 people in the world's poorest country, literally, by some counts, the poorest country. It's always the world's poor countries that take on this inordinate burden of holding the world's poorest people, refugees. Um, And then we are in multiple locations in Lebanon, mostly with Syrian refugees, some Iraqis, some Palestinians. It is unbelievably inspiring work. So it's the largest attempt to bring full degree programs to refugees. Probably 1,500 or so students being served in one way or another right now. So there are lots of universities and colleges that go in with programs, maybe gen eds, certificates, but we're the only one going in with full degrees. And I wish we, you know, we, we're, we're working really hard on how to expand further, but I haven't brought anyone there who hasn't had a life-changing experience. Well, the only other model I know of, and I was fortunate to, to have him on the podcast as well, was Shai Rashef and the University of the People that has, you know, had similarly hu- huge growth. And I was curious if if you all, because c- he talked also about all of the logistical challenges, right? When when it's even minutes for a cell phone, how, how do you enable folks to be able to take part in it? Forget the finances, just actually to to gain the access yeah. to the, the yeah, course. Yeah, so it's hard, right? So the key to us has been to always work with good partners on the ground. So those are partners who provide facilities that have electricity and computers, et cetera. 
we uh, make sure that we're paying them for, for their support and they offer wraparound services. We have staff in country that are moving uh, from place to place. We have a full-time person in Lebanon, for example. Um, we, um, we built a school actually in Malawi. So just completed this year uh, with state-of-the-art technology. Um, it's a magnet for other supports and other programs. So that's a really interesting model to us that we want to explore further. We created um, an operations center in Kigali. We call the Gem Hub. So a lot of the assessments are done there with trained graduates of our program. So they know the program well. They do quality control is exceedingly good. So we're now using it for programs in the U.S. But because we can pay exceedingly well in a Rwandan context, but far less than we pay here, it allows us to make the program more affordable, cut the cost of delivery, and thus serve more refugees. So a lot of moving parts. But, you know, it goes from the profound, like, oh, we've got to navigate the legal regulatory framework of this particular context to, hey, there's a rumor that someone's trying to poison our students because they think they're jealous and they think they're witches. It's like, what? Like medieval stuff um, and everything in between. And I can take almost no credit for this. It's really this amazing team that does the work. And they're, bra- oh, and they're brave. I mean, they go to hard places, David. And they deal with hard stuff. I mean, the hardest stuff. And yet, it's so frigging inspiring. Mm-hmm. It's, it's some ways the best thing I'll do in my career is to help support this. Your, your latest strategic plan lays out uh, what you call VUCA, or I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. I, I'm curious, as you look at the landscape of higher ed in the U.S. for the next decade, with all of us from our different approaches facing those, you know, disruptive forces, how, how do you see it playing out? Clearly, people are talking about the mega universities, yourselves, Western governors, ASU. Do you have a sense of of how much of the market they will serve? Um, what it means for small privates? The, the public system, as you may have followed, we're, we're in major disruption here in Pennsylvania, talking about consolidation. So I'm, I'm curious just how you see those forces playing out uh, in the coming decade. So the metaphor I've used for this often these days, David, um, that I've become fond of because I think it captures for me what it feels like, which is climate change. If you think about climate change, it's undeniable. It's happening. We know it. We're all, many of us are living in heat waves right now. Um, it it plays itself out differently in different ecosystems, of course. So in higher ed, if you use this metaphor for a moment, higher ed has various ecosystems within it, right? There's privates, there's publics, there's selectives, there's R1s, there's community college, which educate half the students in America. We don't talk enough about them, but those are all kind of ecosystems. Then the, depending where they sit, you know, the, a public institution in Pennsylvania is having a different experience on a public institution in California or Texas. So wherever your ecosystem is, this climate change, these big shifts that are happening are definitely happening. You're we're in the middle of it. It's hard to know how it's going to play out, but it, but what we know about ecosystem change, climate change, is that those who were once winners are not going to struggle. Those who flourish will now struggle. Some of whose struggle will now flourish. New entrants will come into the ecosystem. Some of them will be very good. Some of them will be very bad. Invasive species will displace, right? Like all of those metaphors feel right to me. 
This morning, it was announced that 2U, the big OPM, has acquired edX for $800 million, right? Massive thing. That's a new play in the ecosystem. We're going to see a lot of commentary already. It's happening in social media. Like, what do we make of this? Why did they do it? What do you think this means? What does this mean for Coursera, who was kind of eating edX's lunch for a while there? Um, you know, all of this stuff that we're going to work out. So I wish I could tell you with a great deal of certainty how I think it will play out. But I think the point of being smart in a VUCA world, <laughs> um, that term comes from the military, is that and we worked a lot with the Institute for the Future out of Palo Alto, a wonderful organization, formerly known as Xerox Park, if people are old enough to remember that. But they're the one who taught us this term. Um, and, and what they will often say is that if you are certain, you're rigid, and rigid is brittle and breaks fast. What you should be, what you should have is clarity about your North Star. Right. So mission, where you want to go is critical, but you have to be very open and flexible for what's going to happen to get you there. We know that we need a healthy ecosystem. We can probably define much of that. But wow, we got to navigate these waters that are just right all over the map, roiling around us. So what that's meant for us is less about where we're placing our bets, to be honest with you. And we, we have bets. So I can tell you what bets we're placing and why. It's actually about a way of being and thinking and operating as an organization. And what we're trying to do, and it may be the most innovative thing we do if we're successful. I think the jury's out on this, David, to be honest with you. But what we're trying to do is recognize that higher ed is hierarchical. It's siloed. It's pretty rigid. It's hard to move it and change it. It's an expert culture. And expert culture status accrues to the smartest person in the room. Right, that's what we do. Think about tenure and promotion and what gets rewarded. Smartest people in the room don't like to ask a lot of questions. They're, they ch they struggle with I don't know. Right, you lose status with I don't know. Um, we like to be very sure of ourselves. So we're trying to think about how do we make SNHU a much more, less hierarchical, much less expert culture. How do we become a learning institution as opposed to a learned? institution. And this starts at the top. Like I have had to change my leadership practices. I don't think I'm great at it yet. I'm a work in progress. But in the past, if the question was, Paul, you know, what do you think we should do about X? I'd be happy to answer. Feel quite expert. And now what I'm learning is, what do you think? Like more question marks. Um, what do you think we should do? Why do you think we should do that? Are you willing to put your sword on the table for that? How what kind of level of conviction? If you believe it, I believe in you, do it, right? And how do we empower our people? How do we harness the skills and creativity and knowledge that runs throughout the organization? Um, in our hierarchical world, our frontline people rarely get asked, and yet they're closest to the work. They're closest to the problems. So we're very much a work in progress, um, but that's what we're trying to do. And I'll give you an example to make this concrete. After George Floyd's murder, we created a $5 million social justice fund with three things we wanted to look at. What are the things we can do like right in this moment in the crisis that faces the community, world at large, our students? What can, how do we address the larger question of what does it mean to be a student at SNHU, a student of color, a BIPOC student? What does it mean to be an employee of color at SNHU? 
And these are dollars we can apply to making those, to coming up with better solutions and answers. In our top-down hierarchical higher ed world way of being, I would have brought in our chief diversity officer, my team, maybe a consultant who specializes in DEI. We would have figured out how to spend the money and a process for it. We would have sent out a memo and frankly, everyone would have applauded us. It's like, this is great. We were happy that our school, of which we are proud, is doing stuff and you're showing leadership, Paul. Thank you. What we did instead is said, we're gonna create three communities of practice, one for each of these. We're gonna have trained facilitators who know what it means to facilitate a community of practice. It's way more organic and free form. Each will be 20 people, but the way you get on is not by your title or where you sit at SNHU. It's on basis of credibility. Everyone knows you have some really smart thinking about this subject and um, passion, that you have a track record of doing the work. As a result, these communities of practice are a mishmash of positions in hierarchical places and they're the ones telling me how we're going to spend five million bucks. I'm not, not as a set of recommendations, like you decide. That's a very, that's a learning organization that is shifting power in different ways. We've tried it in other places and failed. We're like, ah, this community practice, like self-organized learning is not working for us. So it's a tool, right? Like don't use a hammer when you need a screwdriver. And we're still learning, our, we're expanding our toolkit and learning how to use each of those tools. We're getting a lot of help from Center for Creative Leadership, the various consultants we brought in. We're reading books like Humanocracy and Unleashed, if you know those books, um, which are really about this. But the thing that I think in a world where threat and opportunity got come faster, where the eco shifting, uh, ecosystem is changing very quickly, we need to be more agile. We've got to be curious and learning. We've got to be willing to try stuff. We've got to be able to trust people who are in the work with their passion and their credibility and stop coming up with the grand five-year Soviet-style strategic plan. It ain't going to work. The three-year plan is probably not going to work. I don't know if I believe in multi-year strategic planning, honestly. I believe in a North Star that guides you and a much more, we call it shape-shifting organization that just conforms around the thing that's confronting, right? How do you stand something up? How do you... So we had an opportunity that, you know, is in front of us right now. It kind of came out of nowhere, literally a phone call. And what we're finding is like, we're very quickly able to pull together a team, it's, it's really who's most thoughtful about this. And so it's been interest, it's interesting and we're still learning. If we could get this right, I think it's actually a huge strategic advantage. It gives me more faith about our ability to survive in this changing ecosystem. If we get, if we're like, you know, a monoculture farmer's field and we don't have any diversity in our, in our, in our tools kit, God, we are vulnerable. And I think a lot of higher ed feels vulnerable to me. You know, there are big plays. There are new players. There are new credentials. Credential Engine tells us there's almost a million micros in the market. Think about how ill-prepared most institutions are to create micro-credentials. We're good at degrees. We know degrees. Um, it just, you know, you, you know as well as I do. If are we going, we're not going away. Like, don't worry, some of the schools will go away, but higher ed's not going away. And degrees are not going away. But they're going to sit alongside new providers, new credentials, new timeframes. Um, you know, you've seen the polls. What a lot of America wants right now, I want a sub-degree credential that's affordable, laser-focused on skills, directly tied to a high-demand job that I think is going to be around in three years. Does that describe like the catalog of most institutions? Nope. <laughs> so what are you going to do with that?
as an institution. What are you going to do with that fact? So I'm curious, one of the strategies that a lot of other sectors use to deal with, particularly when there's overcapacity, as we're seeing with the demographic trends, is merger and consolidation. Your success um, has mostly been internal growth, right, is generating this. But you did make a decision a few years ago to integrate Daniel Webster, which became your uh, College for Engineering Technology and Aeronautics. Can you talk about that decision? And is that something you see will be part of this mix? Will we see more of that? Uh, Not necessarily of just failing institutions, but also of folks who say, you know, when we look out at all of these mega players, we we need some form of scale if we're going to make these investments. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that a good part of the future of higher education is online. And I think a lot of it will be, even if you run a residential campus, I just believe you're going to have to be able to offer fluid modalities. That is, students are going to increasingly come to expect that they're going to, that they can just choose the modality that suits them in the moment. Today, I feel like I'm going to go to class because I really struggle with stats and I want to be in class. No, today I've got practice that runs late. I'm just going to do it online asynchronously. No, I'm going to join the class synchronously. Like they're just going to do right. Like that fluidity just feels to me like if I were placing a bet, I place a bet on that. That notion, but to the extent that online um, is an increasingly big part of the whole of the ecosystem, what we know is that online enterprises are successful when they're scaled. And what we see right now is a lot of sort of scaling efforts of various kinds and, to your point, kind of consolidations. Now, it tends to be bigger schools swallowing up little schools and sort of expanding, you know, whatever that gets them. Um, But I think we're likely to see more of that. It happened in hospitals. It happened in banking. It's still happening in both of those places, actually. Um, So for sure, I think we will see more of that. You know, we acquired Daniel Webster in order to get into engineering. We're looking at an acquisition that would get us more emphatically into healthcare, where we're not as strong on the clinical side as we'd like to be. We acquired Kenzie Academy a couple of months ago to move into that sub-credential market. They offer two um, micro-credentials, you know, six and nine-month program, one in UX design, the other one in software engineering. They're doing uh, really good work with Amazon, helping upskill and train Amazon people, uh, employees. I just got something from them today saying you guys are killing it. We'll add six more offerings into their portfolio in the next 18 months, right? So we're going to build out our micro-credential strategy. But we're also partnering with NX, which, as I said, was just acquired by 2U. Um, so we're, we don't think we should be the only provider of these things. We can be an aggregator and an integrator of these things for our students, depending on what gives them the best options. Um, but I think... You know, we acquired LRG um, a couple of years ago. That one was more for the learning as we try to understand opportunity youth. So, yeah, I mean, I think our strategy has been to continue to look at what builds out our catalog, what builds out our knowledge base, what gives us traction in different places. We were attracted to Kenzie because it's so mission aligned. Most boot camps only serve people with college degrees. They don't. They serve the underserved populations we care about most. But we also like them for the fact that they have a strong B2B relationship with Amazon. And we're going to move into that space. That's one of the hot areas as well. Does your institution have a B2B you know, enterprise-wide strategy? That's where the Coursera's and the edX's are getting a lot of traction right now. Um, I think the 2U Guild partnership, where we partner with Guild, that's brought us thousands of students and millions of dollars of tuition revenue. 
because they are an intermediary with very large employers like Walmart and Disney and Chipotle. It's a very fruitful partnership. What's your partnership strategy? So if you think about an ecosystem, you know, and if we were talking about this in terms of plants, we talk about soil, we talk about water, we would talk about light, we would talk about invasive species. Talk about it, your institution, your ecosystem. What is your, you know, what are, what, are, what are your student markets? What is your partnership strategy? What is your micro-credential strategy? What is your online strategy? And you sort of have to have some thesis about the way the world is evolving and then answer that for your place in that ecosystem. That's why my answer is not someone else's answer, right? Because we sit in different places. Yeah. Paul, I, I, I know we're, we're, we're coming up on out of time, but I wanted to give you a chance. You've referenced the two books you're working on, one Students First that I think will be out uh, this fall and the other. Could, could you say just a little more so our listeners will know what to look for? Yeah, well, thank you. And it sounds like I'm hawking books. I don't, it's just that they've been so much on my mind. And it's sure, been, absolutely. To, remember the old E.M. Forrester line, I have to see what I've written to know what I think. I think that's how it went. <laughs> so I write a lot in order to clarify my own thinking. So the book that's coming out in October through Harvard Education Press is um, it's called Students First, uh, Access, Equity, and Opportunity in Higher Ed. And it's really looking at how we can rethink the system, starting with the credit hour as a terrible measure of learning, but also as a way of baking in inequities into our culture for the reasons we talked about earlier around time. It looks at competency-based ed, it looks at rethinking financial aid, et cetera, et cetera. And that book is, I'm really proud of the book and I hope people will find it useful. The second book actually came out of the writing of the first one. And it actually opens the aperture up for a much more provocative question. At least I think it's it's provoked my thinking, and I'm still working through it. So it'll be 22 before that book is out, actively writing it now. But the question it's asking, David, is how can a system so full of people with a calling and a genuine and deep respect and affection and desire for students, how can a system so full of people like that, that's most of who I know in higher ed. I rarely run into people who dislike students or don't care deeply. How do you have that and all of them working in a system that does so much violence to the students it's supposed to serve? Emotional, psychological, and material. How could you look at this system, a system that puts ridiculous pressures on high schoolers, inflicts enormous emotional pain on the admissions process and their self-worth, et cetera, that that exploits graduate students on the other end of the scale, that has, you know, burdened its non-completers with and its completers with $1.7 trillion of debilitating debt, that fails 40% of those who start higher if you use four years as a measure, that exploits its athletes, witness the Supreme Court decisions, that continues to underserve and do poorly for students of color. Like I go down the list, right? Could you look at that system as it exists today and conclude this is a system that loves its students? So the question for is like, what would it take for higher ed to learn to love its students again? Some people have said again, really, are you sure? It's like, I don't know. I'm being a solipsistic here, but this my experience of higher ed felt like I was in a system that embraced me for who I was and lifted me. And I don't know that I think a lot of higher ed does that any longer. So it, it's really... The book, as it's now imagined in my head, is three parts. And the first part is, how do we get back to the things that are most fundamental to students? Mattering, aspiration, helping them dream bigger dreams for themselves. Um, then a, a second part 
looks at, asks the question, what do we as educators and leaders, how do we have to rethink our role in our practice, right? So for that, I'm thinking about the role of leader, leadership in higher ed. And it's, I, I'm embarrassed to say this to you and your audience, and it makes me squeamish. It was a hard thing to write. I should have a chapter on love. And it feels weird to say that. The best teachers I've ever experienced had a genuine, deep, abiding love for students. And what does that mean? What does that mean in a, an institutional system context? So there's a whole section on us. <laughs> and then the third is, well, if we could get those two things right, our students and ourselves, then what would have to happen in the system? And, and sort of looking at government and, you know, we're a regulated world and what, you know, systems go wrong when they say one thing, but value and reward and punish other things. So we say, we, you know, we love students and then we build a tenure and promotion process that tells us nothing about the love of students, but a whole yeah. lot about other things. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have offices that close at 430 if we generally loved 18 year olds yeah. or working adults. You know, our offices are open till midnight because that's the reality of our students. I don't want to pretend that SMHU has somehow unlocked the key, but I do think that this is the, one of the most mission-driven student-centric organizations I know, and I know how we still fall so short. Like, we got to be so much better. So it's a book that's really trying to get at those bigger questions. That's great. Well, look forward to seeing both of them. Paul, thank you for being so generous with your time and so thought-provoking as I knew you would be. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, David. It's really, it's a delight. Um, sorry if I prattled on, but these are things that you and I care about deeply and they deserve to be, we really need to dig in and get it right. America needs us to get this right. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And I hope you have a great summer ahead. Thank you.